Good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 1. All right, we haven't met for a couple of weeks because of the fast and uh, other things going on. So just by way of quick review, Paul has just finished his opening salutation in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. And then his personal introduction, because he had never been to Rome, so his personal introduction, which takes place from verses 8 through the beginning of verse 16. Now, the middle of verse 16 through the end of verse 17 uh, form the theme and thesis of the book of Romans, which kind of the rest of the epistle in many ways is merely an expansion of. All right. So let's read verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 again. Where Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, let me just say this. The only way you're not going to be ashamed of the gospel is if you commit yourself fully and completely to Jesus Christ, right? No excuses, um, no um, games, to quote Nike, just do it. Here's the thing. Carnal Christians are always ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because they've got a, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. And they're trying to be men-pleasers. They're trying to have the best of both worlds. You have to choose this day whom you're going to serve, as Joshua said so many centuries earlier. So it's no wonder that a lot of Christians are ashamed uh, to declare themselves openly as Christians, to share the gospel with somebody, because they don't want people not to like them. They want to, you know, they, they want to have their uh, worldly friends and co-workers to like them and get that promotion at work, which they won't get probably if the boss knows they're a Christian. So you got to choose who you're going to serve, right? Now, what... Paul is talking about is how he had committed himself fully to Jesus Christ. But let me say this. Before you can commit your life to something, you have to first believe in it. And before you can believe in it, you first need to understand it. So understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ hinges on four key words, uh, all of which comes out of Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Here they are. Power, verse 16. Salvation, verse 16, believes, verse 16, and righteousness, verse 17. Now, last time we finished looking at the first three key keywords um, defining the gospel of Christ, which brings us really to the end of verse 16. And uh, let's look at this before we get into that last word uh, that Paul uses in verse 17. So here, verse 16, once again, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Listen, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Another way of saying Gentiles. Now, guys, this statement by Paul was not meant to say that the Jews are better or more important or even that God loves them more than the Gentiles. It simply expresses the chronology of, of the gospel presentation. In other words, it came to the Jewish people first, God's chosen people. And then from them, it spread to the rest of the world, the Gentile world. Now, guys, Jesus stressed this truth during his earthly ministry, uh, that because the Jewish people were God's chosen people, 
they were to be the first ones to have the gospel preached to them. Got a lot of ground to cover tonight, so I'm not going to have you turn to all these. Let me just read these two because you already know them. Uh, this is Jesus saying that the Jews need to be the first in line to hear the gospel because they are God's chosen people. But Matthew 15, verse 24, Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, um, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I'll give you one more. There's many we could look at, but John 4.22, where Jesus was speaking to a woman by the well of Sychar, which is in Samaria. And he said to her in John 4.22, You worship what you do not know. We know, we Jews know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now you say, well, okay, but what about the Gentiles? We know that God loves the Gentiles. We know in the Old Testament, God promised that Messiah was going to be a light to the Gentiles. That when God made a covenant with Abram, this is in Genesis 12, he said that I'm, I'm calling you away from the Ur of the Chaldees, from your family, from your country. Uh, Ur of the Chaldees is in modern uh, Babylon, uh, uh, Iraq, I should say, modern Iraq. And when Abram left uh, by faith, he didn't know really where he was going, but when he left by faith and he crossed over the Euphrates, the word Euphrates means one who crosses over, and that gave birth to a new race of people, the Hebrews. So now we have a new nation, but God told Abram, even back in Genesis 12, that uh, in you, that is in your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So salvation was never intended by God to be only for the Jewish people. Now, a lot of Jews came to believe that, and that's why they hated the Gentiles and never wanted to reach out to the Gentiles because they thought, as the rabbis thought, the Gentiles were only made by God to fuel the fires of hell. They were irredeemable. They couldn't be redeemed. They couldn't be saved. That's how they felt about it. They didn't even read their own scriptures, apparently, right? But we know that in Acts chapter 10, as Peter is on the rooftop of, um, of Simon's house, I believe it is, um, waiting for lunch to be prepared, he, he falls into a trance and sees a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, held by the four corners. When it gets to the earth, it opens up, and there's all manner of clean and unclean animals in this sheet. And he hears a voice from heaven, God saying, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter's horrified. He says, Lord, I'm a good Orthodox kosher Jew. I, I've never eaten anything unclean from my youth. And God says, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And, and the idea was that, and then right after that, there's a knock at Simon's door and some people that have come to bring Peter to uh, Cornelius' house, uh, who was not a believer, but was, uh, he loved the God of Israel. And so God sent Peter and two or three other servants to Cornelius' house, and there Peter witnessed to them. They accepted Christ, officially opening the door to the Gentiles. And you can read about what happened after Peter got back. He got called on the carpet from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. What are you doing? We heard you went into Gentiles. What's going on? Hey, look, don't blame me. God told me to go. God, he showed, told them about the vision, and they said, well, praise God. God has opened the door of the church to the Gentiles. So it was always in God's plan to do that, to embrace the Gentiles as well. Now, again, verse 16 
Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the first word, power of God. Two, second word, salvation. For everyone who, third word, believes. For the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness, the fourth word, uh, key word of the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God. Let me stop there. Right here in verse 17, Paul introduces the key statement of this epistle. The righteousness of God. Which, of course, is connected to the gospel of Christ, he mentions in verse 16. Let me put this to you this way. The gospel of Christ is the theme of the book of Romans. Whereas Paul's statement in verse 17, the righteousness of God, explains what the heart of the gospel is all about. Making sinners righteous. Now the basic idea, and guys, these two verses actually, again, become the theme of the whole book. That's why we've spent a little extra time on these two verses. Uh, you have to understand these verses if you're going to really understand what comes after them, right? So we've taken a little time here, but the basic idea, the righteousness of God, the basic idea is not one of doing right, but of being declared right or righteous. I like what one commentator said. He said, and I quote, The ideas of right and wrong among the Jews are forensic ideas. That is, the Jew always thinks of the right and the wrong as if they were to be settled before a judge. Righteousness is to the Jew not so much a moral quality as it is a legal status. In other words, a matter of guilt or innocence as determined in a court of law. So you understand Paul's coming from a Jewish perspective. And he's talking about righteousness in a forensic sense. Uh, you know, is a person right with God or are they not right with God? Does, has God declared them righteous or are they still unrighteous? That's the whole idea. That's what Paul's going to be getting at. Uh, look, the concept of righteousness is so important to the Christian faith that Paul uses it in one way or another. Righteous, just, justified over 60 times in this letter. Now, many scholars say that the, the accurate rendering of verse 17 should be, for in it the righteousness from God is revealed. In other words, guys, this is a righteousness that comes from God, imputed to a person who believes in and receives Jesus as their Savior. This is a righteousness that does not come as a result of anything sinners can do in the way of good works and religious deeds to earn it. You all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, grace means a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, salvation, not of works, lest any should boast. God doesn't want us in heaven boasting how we are worthy to be there. He took that completely out of our hands, made salvation impossible for us to achieve through our own human effort, and put it all on him, all on him. I like what Warren Worsby said. He said, I quote, God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. For, it, for in the death of Christ, God revealed his righteousness by punishing sin. 
And in the resurrection of Christ, he, he revealed his righteousness by making salvation available to the, believe, to the believing sinner. The, the problem, how can a holy God ever forgive sinners and still be holy, is answered in the gospel. Through the death and resurrection of, of Christ, God is seen to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, quoting from chapter 3, verse 26. Now look, it, I'm going to tell you something that you all in this room know. Okay, but a lot of folks you're going to run into in the course of, you know, being at work or wherever you, you know, live most of your life or uh, on the train or bumping into in the, in the Jewel or Dominic's, wherever you shop. We know as evangelical Christians that God's word tells us that to get into heaven, a person, listen, has to be as righteous as God. To get into heaven, a person has to be as righteous as God, which means perfect. A lot of folks don't know that. All right, we'll talk about that more in a second. Let me just say it. Again, to get into heaven, most people don't realize what the Bible teaches, and that is that the only way you can go to heaven is if you are as righteous as God, which is impossible by human effort. Remember, if you read uh, Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, after he went away sorrowful because he didn't want to give up everything to follow Christ. Uh, and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you know, it's easier for a rich man. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a sewing needle, which is impossible, than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And Jesus' disciples, when they heard that, said, well, then who can possibly be saved? And Jesus said, with men it is what? Very hard, so work hard at it. It's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God has already said that he will not accept the quote-unquote righteousness of man up into heaven. For the so-called righteousness of man is as filthy rags in his sight, Isaiah 64, verse 6. God's solution to fallen man's predicament, well, God imputes his righteousness to sinners based on their faith in Jesus. Guys, the concept of God imputing his righteousness, the word imputing, very important word throughout the New Testament, especially Romans. I think, in fact, I think in chapter 4 alone, he uses a version of that Greek word 11 times. And we'll really hit it when we get there. But the concept of God imputing his righteousness to us is a bookkeeping or accounting idea based on each person's ledger, which God keeps track of. What is our ledger? Well, for lack of a better term, it's um, the book where God has written down all of our sins against him in thought, word, and deed. The Jewish people always understood sin in terms of a debt. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The idea is sins. That's why some translations say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. But in the Jewish mind, a sin against God was a debt they owed God. That's why they brought the animal sacrifices and the various offerings for sin. All right? But our ledger contains all the things we have ever done to violate God's law. And God keeps very meticulous records, by the way. We read in the book of Colossians chapter 2 about this ledger. 
I'll read it to you out of the NLT, verses 13 and 14. It reads, Paul said, You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature which was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it out of the way by nailing it to the cross, to Christ's cross. So God took the... Um, all the, the, if you want to use the term of a scroll, we'll say, that contained all of our sins. And when Christ died on the cross, he nailed it to Christ's cross. Jesus paid for all the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean the whole world is going to be saved. Because you have to receive God's gracious offer of salvation. All right? Uh, but God, Jesus' blood technically paid for the sins of the whole world. So nobody needs to feel, well, I, I don't think I can make it. Well, you can't make it on your own. But if you receive the payment that Jesus made, uh, anybody can go to heaven. Uh, anyone. But I'll give you the flavor of this. Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted, uh, imputed, credited, reckoned. It's all that idea. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for right righteousness. Put to his account. Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work for salvation, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I give you one more. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You see, guys, this is the difference between law and grace, between religion and Christianity. No doubt, the biggest lie Satan has ever fed the human race, because this one has eternal consequences attached to it. You embrace this lie, you're going to hell forever. So of all the lies Satan has told the human race, this is at the very top of the list. The biggest lie that ever, the devil ever fed the human race is the lie that you get to heaven by being good. That you get to heaven by being good. That heaven is a reward, you know, being religious, being moral. The Satan has fed people the idea, the theology, that heaven is a reward for deserving people. That is the lie of religion. There are really only two religions in the world. The religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Every religion and religious system in the world apart from Christianity falls into the category of human achievement. In other words, what we do for God to earn his favor. And if the God they worship is the God of the Bible, well, then ultimately they believe that that good life will earn them heaven. Only Christianity, which, by the way, is not a religion, it's a relationship, but you understand what I'm saying. Only Christianity falls under the category of divine accomplishment. In other words, what God has done for us according to the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. Somebody has said, religion is spelled D-O, in the sense of do, 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 and... Maybe someday you'll earn heaven. 
Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, as in what Jesus said from the cross, John 19, verse 30. It is what? Finished. It's done. He did all the work. He paid the price. Aren't you glad he didn't say from the cross, well, Father, I did my part. I, get, I pray that you give them strength to do their part. Good Lord in heaven. I wouldn't have a minute's rest my entire life hoping I was measuring up and doing enough to earn my part of my salvation. No, Jesus did it all. Guys, religion comes from man and really is an expression of his pride to show he's good enough to work for and earn a place in heaven. It is man-centered and works-oriented. Christianity comes from God and is Christ-centered and grace-oriented. In other words, salvation isn't something we earn by works. It is a free gift we receive by faith. Again, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Guys, listen. Trying to add any work or works, no matter how religious and well-intentioned they might be, Trying to add any work or works to the completed work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is a way of earning, helping to earn our salvation is the ultimate abomination and slap in the face of a holy God who the Bible says very clearly will never share his glory with man and he deserves all glory for our salvation because as Jonathan Edwards, I think, quoted Years ago, the only thing we added to our salvation was the sin. And that was it. God paid the price. Jesus came down, became one of us, went to the cross. He paid the price, right? Um, you know, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and we're coming into the Easter or Resurrection Sunday season, right? Um, and in fact, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. A uh, week after Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, two days before. But I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, where we were taught that religious practices and observances like going to Mass, lighting candles, keeping holy days, praying the rosary, abstaining from certain foods during Lent, and other acts of piety would earn us installments of grace that over time would accrue and eventually earn our salvation. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. That by going to Mass and lighting candles and praying rosaries, you're earning little installments of grace. And if you earn enough installments of grace, eventually you can earn your salvation. For the Catholic who is in good standing in the Church. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church taught, and still teaches, by the way, that we must punish ourselves as a way of paying for our sins, by punishing ourselves also, we can lessen our time in purgatory, what the church teaches. And so faithful Catholics in some parts of the world would and still do today uh, walk barefoot on roads containing sharp rocks while they flagellate themselves with whips until their feet and their backs are raw and bloody as a way of earning God's favor and meriting heaven like the Catholics in the Philippines still do. In fact, uh, you can go online and check this out. They actually have mock crucifixions where they put people on the cross 
because in their minds that is sharing in Jesus' suffering, and I have to share in his suffering so that I can earn a place in heaven. Guys, this is an absolute blasphemy against the completed work of Jesus Christ who said from the cross, it is finished. Turn to Isaiah 53. And listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, what he had to say on the subject. You know it very well. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 5. But he, Jesus Christ, doesn't say he and me, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. One pastor said, if you add one ounce of works to a billion pounds of grace, you negate grace. You negate grace. In other words, you forfeit grace and have divorced yourself from the completed work of Jesus Christ for you on Calvary's cross. You can read Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Paul talks about that directly. Guys, this means that if you try to add anything, I mean, there are those in the Catholic Church that wanted to, uh, and maybe still want, uh, to uh, have Mary declared as co-redemptrix, um, you know, basically co-savior. And uh, they will tell you, we, we don't believe she's 50% worthy like Jesus. It wasn't like she did 50% and he did 50%. You know, he did like, you know, 75, but she did 25%. And there's a church in Italy, I forgot the name of it, but outside the church, there is a very large cross. On the one side, Jesus is hanging. On the other side, Mary is hanging. And you have a billion Roman Catholics that have been taught that's how it is. I was one of them. It's only the grace of God that God allowed me to come out of that system. How did I come out of that system? I started reading the Bible. The truth, Jesus said, will set you free. The truth will set you free. But guys, again, if you try to add anything in the way of human works as a way of helping, quote-unquote, uh, helping God to you know, purchase or earn your salvation, you, you can't be saved. I mean, Paul hits this hard in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 21. He said, If human works, rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, etc., could save us, then what? Christ died in vain. Why did Jesus have to die if I could earn my salvation by just working really hard and being super pious and holy? Why didn't Jesus just come and tell us that? Look, I've come from the Father. He wants me to tell you, look, if you want to get to heaven, it's possible you've got to work really hard and keep the laws and do good, laws of God, do really good, and, and then, you know, you might make it. You won't really know until you stand before God in the day of judgment. Oh, too bad. You, oh, man, you were close. Thank God it's not like that, right? But Paul said, look, if I could earn my way into heaven by my religious deeds and good works, Christ died in vain. Pretty simple logic, right? Now look, as I said a minute ago, verse 17 of Romans 1 is the key verse of the book of Romans. So let's take a closer look at it, all right? 
Again, verse 17. For in it the righteousness that comes from God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We already looked at the first part of verse 17. Uh, but I want to key in on one word there, for in it the righteousness that comes from God is love. Revealed. Revealed. The question is, how is God's righteousness revealed? The answer, it's revealed in the gospel. Let me read it to you this way. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Author William McDonald said, and I quote, The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. First, the gospel tells us that God's righteousness demands that sin be punished, sins be punished. And the penalty uh, is eternal death in hell if they're not paid for. But then we hear that God's love provided what his righteousness demanded. He sent his son to die as a substitute for sinners, paying the penalty in full. Now, because his righteous claims have been fully satisfied, God can righteously save all those who avail themselves of the work of Christ. God demanded that sin be paid for. We couldn't pay for it ourselves. So he became a man and died in our place. He paid our penalty, the penalty his righteousness demanded, which allowed him to offer us now eternal life. Because the price for sin had been paid for. All the debt we owed God, all the sins that we had accrued over the course of our life that we couldn't pay for. Jesus paid with his own blood on Calvary's cross. Now guys, the correct interpretation of the middle of uh, of the middle part of verse 17 has been debated by scholars over the years. That is the righteousness of God is revealed from what? Faith to faith. What exactly does that mean? Well, I checked other translations and they it seems like the translators um we're not fully sure what Paul was saying. I'll, I'll give you some examples. The NIV has it this way. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last or from start to finish. Okay? The Amplified Bible puts it this way. A righteousness which God ascribes is revealed, both springing from faith and leading to faith. And here's the amplification, which I can barely understand which means disclosed through the way of faith that arouses to more faith. I'm sure that clears everything up. <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, the NASB 95 has it from faith to faith, but then adds a footnote, it could be by faith to faith. The NLT paraphrases it this way. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. But it seems there are, there are two dominant interpretations of this verse. I'll share them both with you. All right. One way of interpreting the phrase from faith to faith is, as one pastor put it, I'm quoting, think of faith as the rungs of a ladder or steps on a staircase. Every day we should exercise faith in our daily lives. In other words, the just shall live by faith. And as such, climb higher and higher in our relationship with Jesus. He said, I'd call it a stairway to heaven, but that expression has been tainted, end quote. I agree. The other interpretation says, uh, and I quote, the only way a person can be made righteous is by faith, which is passed on to others through the gospel. 
one person's faith giving birth to another person's faith and salvation. Therefore, God's righteousness is passed along from faith to faith. I think that Paul could be using from faith to faith the same way he used from glory to glory in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Let me read it to you. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And there Paul is talking about how that every day when we walk with God, the Holy Spirit is transforming us from glory to greater glory to greater glory. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're growing. And if he used glory to glory the same way he uses faith to faith, it means that just as we're becoming more and more like Christ every day, if we're walking in the Spirit, it means that as we exercise our faith more and more every day, it is growing, it is increasing, it is bringing us closer to God, that kind of thing. I'll let you decide which interpret. It's not your Christianity is rise or fall on your uh, understanding of this one statement, but I think it's interesting. All right, um, I'll let you decide which is the correct interpretation. Although I will share with you one more from one of my favorite commentators, old J. Vernon McGee, great old Baptist preacher. Here's what he had to say. I thought it was worth sharing with you. Okay, from faith to faith, he says, simply means out of faith into faith. God saves you by faith, you live by faith, you die by faith, and you'll be in heaven by faith. Let me use a homey illustration. Quite a few years ago, I was born deep in the heart of Texas. When I was born, my mother said the doctor lifted me by, by my heels, gave me a whack, and I let out a cry that could be heard in all four borders of that great state. I was born into a world of atmosphere, and that whack started me breathing. From that day to this, I have been breathing atmosphere, from air to air, from oxygen to oxygen. Much later, in the state of Oklahoma, I was born again of the Spirit. So I was saved by faith, and from that time on, it has been from faith to faith, my walk. From faith to faith, he said, and uh, that's how he understands this, all right? So look, these are the four key words that... Paul presents um, with regard to understanding the gospel. Power, salvation, believes, and righteousness. These form what we'll call the skeleton or the spiritual infrastructure of the gospel. In the rest of the epistle, Paul will be adding what we'll say, muscle to the bones and form to the frame. In the meantime, we believers need to understand what a powerful, life-transforming truth God has trusted to us. We need to never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to transform a life, not just save a life and leave the person basically the way they are the, the day God, where they found God. The beautiful thing about salvation is it starts on the earth and carries into heaven. It starts here. The moment a person receives Jesus as their Savior, they are instantly born again. The Spirit of God comes to live inside of them, and then from the inside out, He begins to change them. That change becomes uh, obvious and apparent, uh, depending on the person. Some people hit the ground running, and they get saved on Monday, and by Friday, they're already pastoring a church. I'm kidding. But, but they're, 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 they're almost mature in a lot of ways. 
in a very short time? Well, because they dive into the Word, and they're just reading it and meditating on it and listening to messages and doing their own personal study. They're hungry. The more hungry you are, and the, which gets you into the Word, uh, you know, uh, the more you're going to grow. I mean, I, I have seen Christians who have been Christians literally for 25, 30 years. Um, and they haven't grown hardly at all. Hardly at all. Um, sometimes when you, witness, you talk to some of these people, they get offended. Because a spirit-filled Christian can sense there's a problem here. And so we all want to take it upon ourselves to help a brother or sister to, to grow, okay? And um, you start talking about things of the Lord, and they get uh, offended, indignant. I've heard this, one person say, hey, you don't have to tell me. I've been a Christian for 30 years. No, you've been a Christian for one year, 30 times over. And there's a difference. But we must never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It alone not only can save a soul from hell, it can transform somebody. And you've seen it, I've seen it. Where people that the world had written off as being hopeless causes, lost causes, God redeems. I mean, God delights into going to the uh, junk pile of humanity where the world discards people because of drug abuse or different things. The world has written them off, and yet God reaches down, and he doesn't just patch them up. He makes them brand new. And the world can't understand this. The world never could. But let me just say this to you. Those of us who believe, if we're going to keep growing in Christ to the point where we help others come to Christ, we must continue walking in faith or by faith. As Paul said here, um, the just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. At the end of verse 17, the just shall live by faith. I checked on that word in the Greek, live. And it carries the idea of um, truly lives. There's a, there's a quality uh, attached to that word. A lot of Christians, they live in Christ. They're alive. They're saved. But they're not really living the Christian life. I mean, there's real. God never intended us to crawl across the finish line. He intended that we be more than conquerors. And there's a lot of Christians who are barely saved. We look at their lives and it's like there's no fruit, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no victory. What is going on? Well, a lot of things, but primarily they're not living by faith. They're like the children of Israel in the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt, they're saved, but they haven't entered into the promised land, which represents the life of the Spirit. What a miserable place to be in you got too much of Jesus in you to be, any, to be comfortable any longer in the world, but you got too much of the world in you to be really comfortable around spirit-filled Christians. So you're, in, you're caught between two worlds. Look, God doesn't want us to just exist as Christians. He wants us to thrive. He wants to use us in ways we can't even comprehend right now. But let me say this to you. As Paul said to uh, finish verse 17 the just shall live by faith again quoting Habakkuk 2 verse 4 
I want you just I want to just say this, um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I've done a whole series on stuff like this. I hope everybody in this room is um, uh, is um, mature enough, and I, I I believe you are, to understand that you know faith isn't a force, like Star Wars. Okay, you laugh. I'm telling you, there are Christians who believe this. They believe that faith is basically a force. A force, if you know how it works and the laws that govern it, you can turn it on God and God will give you everything you ask. There is no power inherent in faith. Faith only becomes powerful when it is attached to God. Mark eleven twenty two, have faith, what? In your faith? Have faith in God, Jesus said. And I bring that up because those in the Word of Faith movement claim that there is power in faith. As the granddaddy of the movement, Kenneth Hagin taught in his book, Have Faith in Your Faith. Now that may have sold a lot of copies, but it's pure garbage. It's heresy. Faith doesn't have any power in and of itself. Faith is like the umbilical cord that connects us to God. The life flows from God through the cord to us, just like the life of the mother flows through the umbilical cord to the child in her womb. There is no life in that cord in and of itself. Faith in and of itself is worthless. You can have all the faith in the world in Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad and still go to hell. Faith only finds meaning and validity and power when it's attached to God himself and you are believing the promises of God and his word. Again, biblical faith is simply trusting in God, in his character, and in his promises on a daily basis. Again, the just shall live by faith. Um, guys, for your faith to grow, you got to exercise it. Faith is like a muscle. We've talked about this, right? The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. That's probably what Paul was talking about from faith to faith. The more you exercise faith, the more it grows. Your faith grows from, from faith to faith. In the sense, it gets stronger. It gets, uh, you know, it, it gets stronger and more powerful than because it's connecting to God on a deeper level. But when you trust in the promises God has given you in his word, that's when your Christianity really begins to, to be fruitful. All Christians have God's promises. Not all Christians are willing to really believe in God's promises. They're too busy trying to grab the steering wheel out of Jesus' hands and guide their own lives again because they don't trust God. They're, they're afraid. A lot of Christians are afraid. When God says, look, you know, um, trust me in this. They're like Jacob. They, 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 they want to get in there and they want to try to work it out in their own strength. And they just create problems. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, something God has promised us, and assurance about what we do not yet see. That's faith. It's simply trusting God. God, you said it. I don't know how you're going to do it. You made me a promise. You're going to provide all my needs. Uh, I don't know where that money's coming from, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to praise you. Uh, even though I haven't yet seen the fulfillment, because if you promise it, it's as good as done, and I'm not going to doubt it. That's true faith. 
It's not where you muster up enough faith and now I've got all this faith, I'm going to zap God and he's going to have to give me what I want. I don't know what kind of Christianity you're, you got going there, but, you know. All I know is Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. Everything in our life as Christians happens through our faith. Everything. Yeah, you got saved by faith, but that's not when it all ended. That was the beginning of being now a life of faith, a walk of faith. Let me close by sharing a story with you, as you're going to know in just a second, a true story, okay? I want to share it because I think it's a good way to end this section, and then we're going to catapult into a new section starting next time, all right? But um, this is a true story about this verse we've just looked at, basically. And let me just start out by saying, um, as I was reading this, um, the author said, in the year 1920, an English preacher by the name of Frank Borum published a book of sermons based on great Bible texts, in each case linking his text to a spiritual, uh, in each case linking his text to the spiritual history of a great Christian man or woman. He called his book Texts that made history. Now, in his book, there was David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa. His text, Matthew 28, 20, Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. There was also John Wesley's text out of Zechariah 3, verse 2, is, uh, is not this man a burning brand plucked from the fire? But of all the texts that are associated with the lives of great Christians, there is none more closely connected to a person than the text we have looked at tonight at the end of Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. You see, that text became the text that changed Martin Luther's life and through him the world. One church historian fills in the details of Martin Luther's testimony. I've abbreviated this, but... Uh, you can dig it out and read the whole thing. I think I tried to capture the main points. I'll read it to you. As a young man, Luther had been studying law at his father's request, but his heart wasn't in being an attorney. You see, Luther was tormented by the thought that someday he would have to stand before God and give an account of his life. So, uh, And so on August 17, 1505, Luther suddenly left the university and entered the monastery of the Catholic Augustinian order at Erfurt, Germany. He was 21 years old. Martin threw himself into the monastic life. He fasted and prayed. He devoted himself to menial tasks. But above all, he adhered himself to the sacrament of penance. Now, he's a Catholic, remember, okay? He spent hours and hours confessing even the most trivial sins, until his superiors got so tired of hearing his confessions, they ordered him not to come to confession anymore until he had committed some sin worth confessing. Still, Luther found no peace for his soul through these pious practices. You see, the monkish wisdom of the day instructed him to satisfy God's demand for righteousness by doing good works. But what works, Luther thought? What works can, can from a heart like 
excuse me, what works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source, he said. You see, Luther was in agony of soul because as he confessed to a wise superior, I do not know what will become of me on the day of judgment. He had no assurance. But his wise mentor told him to start reading the Bible to learn about the grace of God and the love of his Savior who died to pay for all his sins. And this is how Martin Luther began to really study the Word of God and eventually the Book of Romans. And as he did almost immediately, he came to Romans 1.17 where he read the words, The just shall live by faith. As he meditated on those words, the Lord began to open his understanding. The truth of God began to dawn on the tortured monk. The righteousness we need in order to stand before the holy God is not a righteousness we can attain. In fact, it is not human righteousness at all. It's divine righteousness, and it becomes ours as a free gift which God gives to us. Our part is merely to receive it by faith and to live by faith in God's promises. Guided by his new revelation, Luther began to compare Scripture with Scripture, and as he did, he found that the passages in the Bible that once troubled him now brought him comfort. In 1510, five years after he had become a monk and two years after he had begun to teach the Bible at the New University of Wittenberg, Luther was sent by his order to Rome. On the way, he became gravely ill and, la and relapsed into depression and fear over his spiritual state. Luther had been sent to Rome on church business but he approached the ancient imperial city as a pilgrim. When he first caught sight of Rome, he raised his hands in ecstasy, exclaiming, I greet thee, thou holy Rome, thrice holy from the blood of the martyrs. At this time, the Mass, during which the body and blood of Jesus are thought to be offered for sins, was the focus of Luther's devotion, uh, and he said Mass often in Rome. Luther performed the ceremony with the solemnity and dignity that, that seemed to him uh, to, re to require the Mass. He believed he should say it with uh, dignity, solemnity, which is what the Mass uh, requires. But this wasn't the case with the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic priests there in Rome. They laughed at the simplicity of this rustic German monk and would interrupt and mock him, and mock him while he was performing the Mass because of his seriousness and piousness. Luther was invited to meetings of distinguished church leaders. There the priests often ridiculed and mocked Catholic rites and ceremonies. These are the priests mocking their own rites and ceremonies. Laughing and with apparent pride, they told how when they were standing at the altar, repeating the words that would transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of the Lord, they said in Latin, bread you are and bread you will remain. Wine you are and wine you will remain. Martin Luther couldn't believe his ears. Later he wrote, and I'm quoting him, no one can imagine what sins and infamous actions are committed in Rome. They must be seen and heard to be believed. Thus they are in the habit of saying, if there is a hell, Rome is built over it. It is an abyss whence issues every kind of sin. He concluded, the nearer we approach Rome, the greater number of bad Christians we meet there, end quote. But while he was in Rome, there occurred the famous incident told many years later by Luther's son, Dr. Paul Luther. In the church of St. John Lateran in Rome, 
There is a set of medieval stone stairs said to have originally been the stairs leading up to Pilate's house in Jerusalem, stairs once walked on by the Lord himself. For this reason, they are called Scala Sancta, holy stairs. It was the custom of pious pilgrims like Luther to ascend these stairs on their knees, praying as they went. At certain intervals, there were, red sta- uh, there were red stairs covered with glass, said to have been caused by the bleeding wounds of Christ. The worshiper would bend over and kiss these steps, praying a long time before ascending painfully to the next one. The remission of years of punishment and purgatory was promised to all who would perform this pious act of devotion. Luther began as the other had before him, but as he ascended the staircase, the words of our text, the just shall live by faith, began to echo in his mind. Over and over again, growing louder with each repetition, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. But Luther was not living by faith. He was living by fear. The old superstitious doctrines of the church and the newly, uh, the old superstitious doctrines of the church and the newly discovered biblical truth he had learned in his studies in the word wrestled with each other in his mind. By fear, said Luther, by faith, said Paul the Apostle. By fear, said the scholars and priests of the medieval of medieval Catholicism. By faith, said the scriptures. By fear, said the other pilgrims who agonized on the staircase beside him. By faith, said God. At last the chains that bound him were broken, and he arose in freedom from the steps which he had been dragging himself up, amazed and ashamed at his superstition and ignorance. Now he realized that God had saved him by the righteousness of Christ received by faith. He was to exercise that faith, receive that righteousness, and live by trusting God, something he had not been doing. Slowly he turned on Pilate's staircase and returned to the bottom. He went back to Wittenberg, and in time he took the just shall live by faith as the foundation of all his doctrine. This was the real beginning of the Reformation. For God first had to bring about a reformation in the heart of his servant Martin before he could use Martin to bring reformation to Christendom, which officially began the reformation on October 31, 1517, when Luther nailed his 95 theses, 95 reforms, on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, and the Protestant Reformation was born, end quote. One more quick final quote by another historian. He said this powerful text had a mysterious influence on the life of Luther. It was a creative sentence both for the Reformer and for the Reformation. It was in these words that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. When Luther rose from his knees on Pilate's staircase in agitation and amazement at those words which Paul had addressed 15 centuries before to the inhabitants of that same metropolis, truth all capitals, truth, till then a melancholy captive, fettered in the church, rose also to fall no more, end quote. So guys, Romans 1.17 tells us that the righteousness of God has been revealed. The next verse, verse 18, tells us that the wrath of God has also been revealed. With this statement, we will begin the first major section 
of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we'll tell you why when we get pick it up again, why Paul has to go here first before he can actually share the gospel in chapter 3. We'll see that um, as we pick up our study. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Truly, it brings light out of darkness. Truly, Lord, it, it is truth which is more powerful than any of Satan's lies. Father, give us grace to have a voracious hunger for your word. Not to ever think that we know it well enough. It has nothing more to teach us or share with us. Give us the hunger of a child that we approach it like we've never read it at all every time we pick it up. That we might see new things. Things that you have placed here for our deeper learning. Truth that will set us free from the bondages and lies of the devil. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.